I'm not popular. I have to say, the show in recent weeks has been nothing like what it's been for the primary duration of its run, and things have never felt on this program for me as high stakes and personal and emotionally volatile as they do for me right now. I am in the dregs of heartbreak and Last week, I attempted to synthesize that to my fullest with an unabridged reading of Oscar Wilde's De Profundis, only available for patrons. And this week, I refuse to give up. We're going to go all the way with this, and we're going to go with it until I can get what I need. So today, we'll be discussing the metaphysical poetry of one of my favorite poets of all time, John Donne. I'm not popular. It's really mystifying to me how when you work on a creative project every week, it starts kind of identifying the cycles of synchronicities that exist in the world. But more than that, it actually seems to start generating them itself. Well before I started season four of this program, I knew that I wanted to frame it around Sakurazaka 46's Start Over and my newfound philosophy on said concept as well as Common Rider Ryuki and the fight to survive and finding a reason to live and fight in a world that is barren and desolate and cruel. Little did I know that these cute little ideas that I came up for my fun little podcast would actually become things I had to rely on in order to survive. Um, I really feel like Tokyo was trying to kill me this summer with the heat that I mentioned a lot It's still like fucking 33 degrees Celsius. Someone can do the math and make that Fahrenheit. Um, And on top of that, I basically had to find a new job, literally start over. And um, worse than any possible employment fiasco, I suffered the greatest and most painful heartbreak of my existence on Earth thus far. I'm going to keep plugging the Patreon, but if you've been listening to me since, like, fucking March, you will have heard about the presence of one of the great loves of my life. Well, that's over. Start over. And here we are. I feel like selecting these concepts of start over and those who don't fight won't survive, um, unfortunately manifested themselves like the universe or God heard me talking about it and said, okay, bitch, do it. Try it. The karmic energy of the universe literally was like, okay, fucking start over. And to be honest, I have been applying my concepts. And while I do recognize that I said that, you know, I think it's difficult and hard work and not simple to delete your entire past, turn to face the blue Evangelion sky, look at the ocean and look for joy when you are recreating yourself. um, It's even harder than I imagined. You don't just get to throw the papers up in your job in a cathartic fit of Japanese high school girl seizures like in the start over video. But 
I'm doing a good enough job, I think. I got a new job, and it's a lot better. It's, like, easy and fun, and I like the people I work with. I've never felt that way about a job, probably, in my entire life, so in the words of Utada Hikaru, I hope I don't fuck that up again, but there is simply nothing parallel in reality than feeling deep pits of love and affection and joy, ecstasy, and then slowly watching it fade, and then having it all cruelly crushed under a boot, broken into a million pieces, and strewn about the street right in front of your very eyes. Love is destructive, cruel, and harsh. It's also one of the best things you can experience in a lifetime. I think about Titanic and those incredibly moving moments of Jack and Rose going through real romance just to have it taken away, and that is a universal experience. I think a lot of us do touch the face of love one time in a lifetime, or if you're fortunate, a few times, and then to watch it die in front of you. It's, um, it's sadistic of nature to design human beings to fall in love, or, or God. It's cruel to invent love like that, and also, simultaneously, the penchant for it to simply blow away in the smoke. Oscar Wilde writes to his Bosey, Lord Alfred Douglas in De Profundis, that maybe Bosey doesn't understand what love is. I think I do not know at all. I've been asking this question to myself over and over and over again, on record, on this show even, and I still have no idea. I feel like I've gotten closest to it most recently, and then seeing it detonate and turn into smithereens and have to deal with the ache and woe that accompanies that sight, it has thrown everything I know about the concept back into high relief. And what I don't know is now just as strong as what I thought I knew. So what to do about that? Let's talk about art on my fucking podcast and see if that explains anything. Let's try it. Let's just try it again, you bunch of bastards. To be frank with the listeners at home, I do hope you all appreciate a little bit of this Sisyphean task I've made of myself. Of course, my podcast is a narcissistic endeavor that I do entirely for my own reasons and for nothing else. I do not do it for money. I do not do it for fame. I do it for the catharsis of making people read the stuff I'm interested in and meet me at my level about art that I think deserves to be spoken about. But I really do think I am doing a great public service by lacerating myself publicly and unabashedly with little moderation, if any at all. And you better pay me $5 a month to do it, okay? It's getting it's getting ridiculous. So I'm going to keep masticating myself for all of you, but, like, you know, give a girl some respect where respect is due. I'll keep chewing myself up and spitting it out forever. That's just my nature. But when I'm giving so much of that, you know, spit matter into all of your mouths directly from mother's bird beak, 
it would be lovely for a little bit of uh, compensation for such tasks. But if we're going to continue eating Zach Langley Chi-Chi up, then we need to get to the bottom of what love is. I think it's going to take a little bit of time, and we're going to have to do it with a lot of people over a lot of art. That issue is not going to be resolved today, and it probably never will be generally. But if there's anywhere that it makes sense to start, it would be with the metaphysical poets. But even before that, there is one other prescient voice that I feel is worth bringing up. Because there is one surviving medium that is totally committed to love. Or at least in theory, it's supposed to be committed to love. And that's pop music. Popular music, in its function, is supposed to work as a three and a half minute, exciting, fun, and immediately cathartic transformation of the impossibly difficult to describe ecstasies and hardships of the heart and turn it into something that you can swallow down whole. You're supposed to listen to a pop song and feel that your ineffable feelings of tragedy and heartbreak and unbelievable infatuation are things that can be merely turned into a cute little song that makes you feel good or makes you feel heard. That's what it's been since the 60s anyway. But as we continue across the ache of post-modernity, that truth has become more and more abstracted. At least in the West. Because all the Japanese pop music I listen to still does that plus more while being accessible and friendly, at least to Japanese audiences. Meanwhile, in the United States of America, we are trapped with the likes of Doja Cat. We have women doing hip-hop, trap experimentation, covered in blood, satanic, nightmare, found-footage, dystopiascape of them picking apart their public reputation and their role in the culture at large for their pop music. I'm not even that, you know, disgusted by Doja Cat or anything, but when I think about what I want to hear on the radio and what I want to hear in the club and what I want to be surrounded by and what actually transforms my inaccessible feelings into something that people can communicate together as a group and feel across large swaths of different people, Doja Cat is not it. That song that she did about how everyone hates her and she's so famous and her fame is so complicated and it means that's not pop music that's deeply repulsive masturbation and if you're going to masturbate in public at least have the integrity to do it in a way that's exciting and fun like madonna when i see people like doja cat doing it i just feel sad and alienated i don't mean to single her out because in her discography, even though she bemoans it now, she does have successful pop music that actually satisfies all of the needs I'm looking for. Songs like Say So from Hot Pink are the exact kind of thing that you can hear anywhere and anyone can hear it and everyone knows the same kind of emotional beat it's hitting and it takes those psycho-Semitic feelings out of heaven and brings them onto earth in the form of a song. But she's not doing it, and 
beyond her, when you get to kind of like the fringes of pop music and we get into stuff like Kim Petras, it all becomes so conceptual and laden with post-text and imagery and references that it all becomes a cynical, nostalgia-hued nightmare of what music could be. I'm not alone in thinking that pop music has become warped and strange and unfortunate. In fact, even, I think, Stan Twitter, of all hellish places on earth, realized this. Everyone was begging for a, quote, bop, unquote. The public is thirsty for accessible, catchy, well-made music that speaks simply to the emotions we cannot otherwise name. But... The ensuing era of people pursuing that trend is that of people like Dua Lipa and Charlie XCX promising us, quote, back to basics, unquote, pop music that is, in fact, just elaborately disguised nostalgia for the 80s and 90s. It's definitely a good attempt, but it's just not quite there. There is something cynical and displeasing to me about the submission to nostalgia and petty retreading of the past for our public emotional processing rituals. Like, why can't something of the moment, something contemporary and now an original, do the same thing? It just depresses me to imagine that we couldn't come up with the same thing that we were able to do for so long without having to live in this feedback loop of referencing the past. But, to my surprise, there is a single 20-year-old girl who seems to be the last hope for the kind of pop music I want to hear, and everyone fucking hates her for it. Olivia Rodrigo. She released her first album, Sour, about two years ago in May of 2021, and at the time, I wasn't going through anything like a breakup or any certain emotional turmoil, but I was preparing to move to Tokyo, and I have a very distinct memory of seeing a large advertising truck with her beautiful face plastered on it against that kind of off-light purple background, covered in stickers and looking aloof. It was playing Good For You at max volume in uh, Shibuya Crossing, and I don't know, I just was immediately kind of intrigued by this very pretty girl. So for my train ride back to Mie after a job interview, I downloaded the album and gave it a listen and was deeply and pleasantly surprised by the simplicity and basic emotional catharsis that she offered that I wasn't finding almost anywhere else. The actual quality of the music itself really took me aback because it's quite simple it's nothing all that adventurous or experimental. And yet, even in uh, its simplicity, it does feel almost staggeringly modern. The references on the table are kind of like Hole and Courtney Love and Paramore and early 2010s popular rock music. But it doesn't really sound like it's merely recreating that aesthetic. Instead, it feels like it's referencing it and then spinning it into something new uh, and a logical conclusion of those musical genres and making uh, its own independent sound. I think it's in her favor that Olivia Rodrigo is pretty basic, for lack of a better word. 
She's a Disney Channel alumni. Maybe not even that. She might be like a Disney Plus alumni. From what I understand, she was in High School Musical, the musical, the show. And I guess that's where she came from. Everyone was quite panicked at her sudden popularity. She released Driver's License um, out of the blue, and it became an enormous hit that truly flummoxed and frustrated all those who came across it. Unless you're like a 16-year-old girl uh, on TikTok, they all seem to eat it up. But classically, gay guys who are overly encumbered with musical critical theory thought, they all decided that this was some fake industry plant nonsense and it was horrible, it wasn't real, and it needed to go directly into the garbage can. There was a lot of like actual resentment towards her due to the popularity of this song, but in my mind, it's very sweet and it's charming. It's a heartbroken song about driving around the streets of LA past the places you used to go with your ex-boyfriend and feeling upset about the fact that uh, you're no longer with him. That's all the song is. It's a little cliche at points. And yet this song accomplishes virtually everything that I'm demanding from my pop music. It is immediately familiar. It feels almost cosmic in its generality. And listening to it immediately gives you name, sensation, and corporeal feeling to the lofty emotional world that is otherwise inaccessible. I was also really intrigued by the art direction for her music videos done by Petra Collins. There's a really good one for Good For You, which features her in a um, submerged watery room with everything on fire and she's wearing like a cheerleader outfit and black latex gloves. It's very um, striking. I don't know, I just felt like the whole world was out to get this girl. And for what? Because she's pretty and skinny and her music makes sense the second you hear it and you don't have to think about it for it to make you feel something? Half of me wonders if people hear the overblown cliche emotionality that she expresses and are actually totally getting it and resonating with it. And because they are, they have to put on a shroud of irony and detachment so that they can excuse themselves from being cringe. I understand that the 2010s were a time of oversaturation when it comes to things like sincerity and earnesty, but when we're faced with the alternative of Doja Cat, FKA Twigs, black tendrils coming out of your mouth as you contemplate the postmodernity of fame, I'm not ashamed and I don't think it's cringe to say that a sad girl driving around in her car and feeling bad about her ex-boyfriend is far preferable. And beyond preferable, I even dare to say that it feels refreshing and avant-garde to hear something so simple and down to the bone of what I believe pop music should be about. So yes, sue me. I am riveted and fascinated by this tiny little Disney Channel starlet and her generic music about heartache. Press charges. And I was very intrigued to see what she would do with this sudden, highly elevated platform that she holds. And here she is in the year 2023 with her second album. It's called Guts. It just came out a few weeks ago, but I've already listened to it countless times. And uh, she touted the album as being a record about, 
once again, heartbreak and growing pains, the tribulations of being young and in love. No surprises there. But much to my delight, she refused to experiment, she declined any sort of reinvention, and instead doubled down on the juicy, pulpy, sweet nectar of sweet, sweet cliché. The lead single is called Vampire, and I definitely don't even have to tell you what kind of metaphor she's venturing to make on that one. It's about being hurt by a guy... Someone who promises you love and affection, and you revel in the intensity of your feelings for him despite all warnings against it. And when he turns out to be a monster, he sucks your blood and drains your life force. He only comes out at night. Because he's a demon. Crazy. But isn't there something delightful and comforting about a song that's just totally unafraid to traffic in all of the worn-out, tired conventions we've all known since birth? Like, ever since Bram Stoker invented Dracula, we've all known what a vampire is, we all have associations with it. It's why something like Twilight is so massively successful and riveting and culturally captivating, is because we all know the meaning of these symbols. And having them earnestly played instead of ironically or with an abundance of comment makes it all the more accessible and straight to the heart when you hear it on the radio or in a taxi or it gets played on your Spotify shuffle. God help you if you're still letting Spotify do that to you. Even behind the devilishly obvious conceit here, the lyrics are somehow even more plain. She writes, You said it was true love, but wouldn't that be hard? You can't love anyone because that would mean you had a heart. Like, duh. But when you hear someone singing it with such intensity, and Olivia Rodrigo's voice is this kind of, like, airy, soprano, um, like, whispery kind of tone, but she really yells out and, like leans into her vibrato so that you hear every lyric and you feel all of it. When you hear her singing those kinds of duh words at you, it feels uh, it feels like home. It feels like the feeling you've always had and can recognize very easily. It's actually really sweet and moving to me just how much conviction she has in these platitudes she delivers endlessly across the album. It convincingly manifests the dumb innocence of youth and reminds you of the uh, innate ignorance that we all can carry when we're swept off our feet. She definitely has a theater girl energy behind her. There's, um, there's a song somewhere on the album where she talks about always ending uh, up falling for gay guys, which I thought was funny and very high school thespian club of her. But theater girl energy doesn't always have to be evil and scary and Rachel Berry. Sometimes it can mean that you just believe so strongly in the capacity of your heart that you are not afraid to come across as unstylish and simple and unartistic and uncomplicated. And the record is all the better for it. I really think that Vampire is one of the most uh, exciting pop songs I've heard all year, and it's made even more exciting by its kind of Paramore-esque production. 
it literalizes the blunt force of these simple lyrics by literally hammering you with this like guitar shredding at the end that's just played on a loop and it's really just quite cathartic to hear especially when you are a 27 year old gay man who feels like you've been ripped up and eaten up just like this filipino girl in la Basically, all of the faster and more up-tempo songs on this album have the same effect. Um, She has this Gwen Stefani habit of doing this, like, cheerleader, rapping, chanting, rallying thing that uh, I really love. I really like hearing her kind of shouting these lyrics and barking at you when I'm walking with intent towards the train station and feeling upset about the state of my heart. Even when she misapplies these very correct impulses towards something like identity, it still feels right to me. The uh, first song on the album is All American Bitch, and it has her listing off the consequences and uh, contradictions of being a woman in America. It's all exceedingly familiar and never insightful in any way, but in the same way that her feelings for a man are turned into this big, dumb, huge sledgehammer, um, her stresses about being a young woman and feeling misplaced come across in a very similar way that lends a lot of identification and empathy for the listener. There's a slower song called Lacey where she's basically just listing out all the ways another girl makes her feel insecure just in existing very beautifully and wearing nice perfume and dressing well and being skinnier than her. And it's kind of an embarrassing thing to say, and the way that she says it is definitely embarrassing too. But who's to say that they've never once felt envious of someone else and then experienced private shame and humiliation in their heart about it? Taylor Swift has similarly built a career off of these kind of humiliating and self-deprecating depictions of the most private and inappropriate parts of her feelings, and Olivia Rodrigo frequently cites her as a reference. But Taylor always feels so heavy and, like, pregnant with context and scandal that you need to understand post-text to get the whole picture. And she feels often kind of vindictive and cruel, and I wouldn't say that's necessarily the tone Olivia Rodrigo has anywhere on this album. You can really feel that the love that she experienced was real, and there's even kind of a sexy element to it as well. I think um, she would do well in her coming records to pursue that uh, feeling a little more and really get a little deeper into the vagina than she is now. But... There's songs on here like uh, Get Him Back and Bad Idea Right that both kind of see her misbehaving and uh, making a mess of herself by pursuing a man who's uh, very much over her and uh, going and seeing him after they've broken up or uh, making the conscious decision that she's going to get him back just so he can just so she can break his heart all over again. These themes are something that I think would appear on a Taylor Swift album, too, but in Olivia's voice, they feel a lot more, can I say realistic? They feel truer to me. 
Taylor always seems like she's doing this like spider web weaving master plan and the ridiculous kind of butt rock guitars that Olivia Rodrigo likes to reference so much lend her a bit more vulnerability that um, reminds me a lot of how I feel often. All of this is merely to say that when you degrade language a little bit from its lofty place on the pedestal of gorgeous poetics and take it into the colloquial realm of the public consciousness and you shed a little bit of your pretensions and you simply just say things as you want to say though no matter how cliche they might be it can sometimes turn out to be rather effective. John Donne was born in the late 16th century and passed away in 1631. He was best known during his lifetime as a cleric for the Church of England, despite secretly having been a Catholic at birth in a recusant family. In his uh, life, he composed many religious speeches, elegies, epigrams, sermons, as well as poems that he conducted privately uh, that would later become the foundation of what we now know to be as metaphysical poetry. John Donne died before so much as turning 60, but in that time, he managed to live as full a life as possible. He spent much of his youth overseas, traveling as much of the world as he could. He saw great acts of human carnage, as well as beautiful feats of natural accomplishment and sublimity in the world around him. He betrayed uh, his family and his religion and English social order uh, in order to pursue a marriage and family with the woman he loved. He had, I believe, eight children with her as well as many miscarriages and many stillborns. On top of that, he was an extraordinarily prominent figure in English social and political life, having influence and roles in everything from uh, the clergy, as mentioned, to the English political society. This was all while basically uh, living his life deeply impoverished and unrecognized for his true talent until far after his death. For someone who lived at the same time as William Shakespeare, it is uh, actually difficult to understate just how important Dunn's poetry is in the configuration of English literature as we know it. Not just poetry, but fiction, prose, the uh, political polemic that we're all quite familiar with, Dunn has at least a finger in influencing the direction that all of those would take in the centuries to come. Any student of English literature will certainly have encountered Dunn at least once in their career, but even those who uh, might not so seriously devote themselves to 
the English letters are still probably unaware that they have uh, very patterns of their speech influenced by his writing. If you've ever heard the phrase, for whom the bell tolls, that comes from Dunn, as does the platitude, no man is an island. But apart from the literal words and phrases that he enmeshed in our language, I think Dunn's most important contribution is the style and voice that he basically originated. Until Dunn, as far as we know, very few poets and artists wrote in the colloquial and familiar sort of prosody that he did. His poems have the rhythm and texture of the way that people would have spoken to each other in that time. It seems um, not necessarily like a novel invention when you look back at it retrospectively, but the idea of composing the great works of literature and the highly esteemed poetry that he did in this sort of speech-like common language was almost blasphemous and offensive. Even half a millennia later, there's something about Dunn's uh, proclivities towards offense and provocation that make him feel very titillating and exciting. I remember when I first came across him in my second quarter of the English survey class I had to take in university. I was feeling kind of daunted by stuff like Chaucer and Edmund Spencer because it took so much effort and attention to parse them. But then when we had the uh, brief interstitial of time when we were focusing on the metaphysical poets, I was awed and in disbelief that this man writing 500 years ago could continue to make himself feel so enduringly alive and present when you experience his writing. There is something about his voice and the locality of it, like the fact that it feels somewhat unornamented and even destructive at times. It feels quite gruff and like the language you might hear at a bar in some ways. All of these qualities make it so that um, regardless of what time period you find him in, you'll still be able to kind of feel like he's the drunk guy sitting next to you somewhere in public. Poetry is actually something that has caused me a lot of strife <laughs> in my experience with reading. Uh, it's a big part of your English education, and I never really felt that I was a poem-reading person. I, of course, liked the confessional poets, as I've talked about on this show when I... um. Oh my goodness, so long ago, a year and a half ago, talked about Gwen Stefani and Anne Sexton. And I always like felt like I wanted to be more of a person who reads poems. But the fact of the matter is, is that poetry just does not really click with my brain in a lot of ways. For all of the love that I heap upon song lyrics, I can sometimes read an entire poem and feel like I've never read it at all. Even if I read it three times or if I read it out loud, it will just float away in the breeze. And that becomes more and more true with each passing year. I've had a really strange fixation on the Paris Review lately, and I would say that 75% of the work that they publish there goes in one eye and out some unholy orifice. 
Like, I really do not understand how people become poets or, like, fall in love with poetry sometimes because most of it is, like, so ephemeral and hard to put into your hands and substanceless that it really feels like trying to pick up the air itself. But all the same, from time to time, there will be a poet that can pierce that mesh and suddenly make me realize exactly what the point of verse is to begin with. When a poem is good and true, it's like it's reverberating with your heart. It feels like it's making the sensations that exist within you suddenly real in front of you. It's like it's actually like sticking its arm into your flesh and extracting the feelings that are so deeply embedded that you could never say them yourself. Just in the way um, a good pop song or philosophy will do the same thing. It actually possesses and seizes you and then speaks from your own mouth. When you're reading poetry privately and you're just going over the words and scanning them in your head and then maybe hearing them or visualizing them pictorially, it is a kind of invasive and penetrative process. It's very rare that poems actually are capable of achieving that effect, but when they do, it can be profoundly moving. So, although I only scarcely encounter, like, Uh, any poems that can do that to me when they do it's a big deal and they end up rattling around inside my head like loose change in a pocket forever and I really do think that it takes this sort of sexually aggressive element in order for a poem to work if something is overly affected or decorated or cute it will remain as smoke in the air and something you can't put in your fingers. But if it has that sort of sexually intense, charged, um, aroused erection element about it, then it's going to take you. It's going to forcibly enter you. And I just really think that in order for a poem to be effective, it has to have that sort of sexual element about it, even if the theme or content isn't necessarily sexual. This all leads back to why I think I fell in love with Dunn in the first place. I really did feel like I was getting pricked on him, uh, pun intended. The metaphysical poets are quite famous for the way that they structured their poetry. The idea was that they had a conceit. They would have a central image or symbol or metaphor that they would lavish in for much of the poem, and then at its very conclusion, in maybe the last few lines or the final stanza, they would invert it or twist that image they've introduced to you to make the point of what they were saying. The notion of the conceit, I think, has a touch of satire about it, and it's kind of clownish and funny that you are willingly buying into this really gorgeously rendered image that they ultimately just use to turn around and kind of make a joke of you uh, for thinking of it in a certain way in the first place. But what makes Dunn so exciting to me is that although he traffics a little bit in the poking and prodding of his audience, The main reason he relies on these conceits and metaphors is so that he can introduce a perspective and an idea of what he's talking about that you hadn't maybe noticed previously. 
He's using these ideas and imageries to turn the prison around and introduce a dimension that you would have been blind to had he not tricked you at least a little bit. Moreover, I really think what makes his reliance on these conceits and metaphors so impactful is that he's not utilizing them to ridicule you over social farce or politics or something insubstantial. He uses these little devices that he's come up with to introduce new faces of sexuality and love and one's relationship with God and Jesus in a new light. It's like he is taking the elements of the world in front of us and then twisting them around so that you can see them for how they really are. He's grabbing some unruly, hard-to-swallow force and then just merely turning it on its side so that you can see its shape for what it really is. That he would elect to do this over romance, love, and sexuality is beautiful to me and makes me feel very validated in my own podcasting mission. But I don't think it's possible to understand what I'm really saying or or what I mean by any of this unless we actually uh, hear directly from him. So I think probably his most famous poem, and at least the one that I think is kind of most associated with uh, metaphysical poetry, would probably be The Flea. The poem goes like this. Mark but this flea, and mark in this, How little that which thou deniest me is, it sucked me first and now sucks thee. And in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Thou knowest that this cannot be said, a sin nor shame nor loss of maidenhead. Yet this enjoys before it woo, and pampered swells with one blood made of two. And this, alas, is more than we do. O stay, three lives in one flea spare, where we almost, nay, more than married are. This flea is you and I and this, our marriage bed and marriage temple is. Though parents grudge and you we are met, and cloistered in these living walls of jet, though use make you apt to kill me, let not to that self-murder added be, and sacrilege three sins in killing thee. Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence? Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? Yet thou triumphst, and sayest that thou find'st not thyself nor me the weaker now. Tis true, then learn how false fears be, just so much honor when thou used to me. Will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. The Flea is a poem that feels abrasive at its onset as a a pair of lovers lounge about a bed and spy a flea that sucked blood from both of their bodies. The speaker is attempting to seduce his beloved figure by pointing out this flea, a very common fixture among the beds of European life at the time, and calling attention to two bloods mingled bee. I'm really taken by this conceit of the flea. It probably made a lot more sense for people of the contemporary moment to imagine the flea as something 
innately linked with the erotic. Um, there's no doubt that any number of bedsheets at the time were ridden with them, and if you were to lie naked with a lover, you'd surely be assailed by their presence. Um, but there is, of course, the fact that it's a fucking bug and disgusting, and turning the prism and transforming it into a perfect erotic image is almost unthinkable, and it feels like alchemy to read this poem and watch him do just that. The flea, having sucked the blood of both the male and female figure of the poem, now is this sort of cosmic orb. It's not only a living being itself, but within the confines of its own flesh, it harbors the life essence and almost like the souls of these two people, swirling around and creating an emblem of love itself. Sex is, at the end of the day, little more than a mingling of human fluids. Even for uh, the abject homosexual like myself, uh, where we deposit said fluids into the grave of the rectum, there is still a transference of one's physical product into the body of another. Human ego and identity can be a very hard wall to trespass, but in the very act of procreation and what continues our species and creates more of us, that's the uh, place where we can pierce those borders and literally mingle our fluids and find a way to trespass into the realm of the other that is so impossible to gain access to in every other facet of life. But phrasing that function in such words kind of sucks the blood out of it, doesn't it? When you put it into phrases and philosophy and logic, you kind of lose the absurdity and the strangeness and the uncanny quality that exists in, uh, in sex. So Dunn's gesture here is nothing short of genius by my book. The image of the flea not only represents the kind of uh, elevated cerebral melding that occurs during sex, but it also points out the uncomfortable, kind of comical, and disgusting nature of it as well in having this really kind of divine and heavenly merging of souls occur inside the body of a pest. The way he describes it has always uh, really stood out to me when he writes, Cloistered in these living walls of jet. Most people read this poem quite satirically and um, that the speaker is sort of in on the satire and knowingly winking at the, uh, the audience for taking this image seriously. And yet, when you read something like, Cloistered in these living walls of jet, I really feel that there is a degree of sincerity. Because despite the casual cadence that he's known for writing in, this is simply put, gorgeous writing. Living walls of jet. It's just almost too beautiful to believe, and it really stirs my heart up. I think the reason this really gets to me is because what Dunn in effect is doing, despite the fact most people read this satirically, is that he's taking the ephemeral ideas of love and desire, these sensations that flicker about in the air of your heart and vanish before you can so much as grasp them, and he's entombing them in this image that you can really practically visualize. And 
even in shrinking the titanic feelings of love into a flea, he doesn't lose any of its grandiosity or its complex nature. You're more than welcome to read this as kind of a knowing show on behalf of the speaker, where he's uh, showing his cards in the kind of ridiculous seduction that he is posing to his beloved figure. But for me, I find it much more gratifying to meet him at face value and really see the flea as an encapsulation of love and desire itself. And I think the poem kind of agrees with that because there is a clear reference to the Holy Trinity, the idea of these three sort of invisible facets of multiple beings merging into one divine entity, no matter how ridiculous its shape might be. I don't know, I just find that to be uh, much more exciting than reading this as a big joke. I also really like how in swallowing up these essences, the flea becomes kind of like a sentient boner. Dunn writes, And pampered swells with one blood made of two. In imagining the flea as kind of an engorged hard-on, you really do see the majesty of the male erection. Because there is so little irrefutable proof of these feelings that I've described on this episode over and over again as immaterial and ephemeral. And yet, when you witness an enlarged member that is irrefutable physical proof of the desire that lingers in someone's heart. In attempting to seduce this female figure, the speaker argues that the mingling of their blood inside the boner flea is, in fact, an innocent rite, as much it is kind of a spiritual one in the a shape of the Holy Trinity, but the poem almost tragically ends with this female figure smashing the flea. Dunn writes, Cruel and sudden hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence. Wherein could this flea guilty be, except in that drop which it sucked from thee? I am just so obsessed <laughs> with this um, stanza because there's something so evocative and rich about the purpled finger. This cruel lover decides to reject the deified, beautiful, and holy ritual of blood mingling within the flea by purpling her finger and smashing it. In the same way that Dunn is able to create the perfect ornament of love inside the flea and showcase all of its mystifying and extraordinary qualities, he also is able to show the coldness and cruelty and terror of its extinction. All of that careful, sumptuous, and elegant description of the definition of love is just immediately crushed and bloodied under the force of a single finger. And that's what heartbreak feels like to me. After you've dumped so much emotional profundity in the depths of your heart into this cosmic mingling of souls, all it takes is one rejection as she presses her finger into the bug and watches all of those shared feelings explode into the grooves of her fingertip. If the poem ended there, I would still be amazed and obsessed with it, but what I find so exhilarating is that Dunn continues to press the metaphor like the beloved female figure presses that flea, 
because he goes on to write, "'Tis true, then learn how false fears be. Just so much honor when thou yield'st to me will waste as this flea's death took life from thee." He's basically arguing that should this woman be so vicious and heartless as to murder all three of their souls gathered up within the flea, then surely the sin of unbridled sexuality must be no worse. If you are to be so violent as to kill this innocent gathering and beautiful pageant of mingling souls and hearts, then um, a little fucking probably wouldn't hurt you. This twist at the end is usually where critics begin identifying the humorous tone and satirical elements of the poem, but for me, when I look at it, what I kind of see is, first, the incredibly detailed and fabulous creation of love within the flea, its cold and tragic death, and then, amazingly enough, a final move towards hope. It feels somewhat masochistic for the speaker to see this item he's rendered so beautifully crushed and just to use that same death as a ploy towards seduction. But for me, it seems to suggest that there is hope even within the bloodied guts of your love made real. We also see here, maybe most importantly, what is uh, one of Dunn's defining attributes, which is his deployment of death and the void within the realm of love. Death to plenty of Renaissance uh, figures was associated with um, le petit mot, the uh, little death as we know it, or um, basically orgasm. But beyond that, death is the destruction of the speaker. It's the erasure of the ability to speak, and it is the black hole in which all of these emotions are eventually all doomed to. And certainly in the face of my own emotional hardships recently, I quite fear all of these um, feelings that I have accumulated over time getting crushed out by a malignant finger pushing me into the ground and exploding me like the fucking flea here. But fortunately, uh, Dunn is quite fixated on this topic, and we have lots of poems to uh, start picking it apart with. I think one of my favorite of his verses addressing this topic would be a poem called The Damp. And it goes like this. When I am dead, and doctors know not why, and my friend's curiosity will have me cut up to survey each part, when they shall find your picture in my heart, you think a sudden damp of love will thorough all their senses move, and work on them as me, and so prefer your murder to the name of massacre. Poor victories, but if you dare be brave, and pleasure in your conquest have, first kill the enormous giant, your disdain, and let the enchantress honor next be slain, and like a goth and vandal rise, deface records and histories of your own arts and triumphs over men, and without such advantage, kill me then. For I could muster up as well as you, my giants and my witches too which are vast constancy and secretness, but these I neither look for nor profess. Kill me as woman, let me die. As a mere man, do you but try your passive valor, and you shall find then, naked you have odds enough of any man. 
whereas the previous poem, The Flea, is all about externalizing love and desire through the representations of an object, this poem, The Damp, is all about the internalization of it. It begins with the notion of a corpse in autopsy. It pictures the speaker dead and slain and laid out upon a table with his guts knifed open and doctors prying about his innards for some sort of evidence as to what caused his death. And within the body, there is of course the heart, the eternal Olivia Rodrigo image of what it means to love and feel, and upon that heart is the image of a beloved figure etched into its form. Configuring a cadaver as a romantic image is certainly within John Donne's modus operandi, but he doesn't just keep it as sort of an abject, disgusting picture. He decides instead that once this heart is opened and the portrait of the lover is right there in his body, that the onlookers are all thrushed with, quote, a sudden damp of love, unquote, that thoroughly moves their senses and sways them so to the beauty of this death in the name of love that they prefer massacre and murder of, this, of themselves than to uh, keep living their paltry lives. When the extremity of love is so powerful that it leads to death, those who see it and can recognize the case are all moved towards this suicidal ideation. I can't say how many times on this show, let alone my numerous guest appearances as recently as when I went on Agitator this summer, have I revealed that my preferred way to die is to be stuck with a bunch of spears and lances by all the beautiful men I've ever loved. It seems kind of like um, a neurotic fantasy, but it is um, not necessarily surprising that John Donne also realizes that Within our compulsions to love and lust for the other, we are also pushing in some uncanny direction towards death and the void. Because I mentioned when I was describing the flea that love and sexuality is the only locality in which our bloods can mingle. And in order to do an Evangelion instrumentality and merge your soul with someone else, it does, in fact, require at least some vanquishing of your own being. To love strongly is, in fact, to kill yourself and to die just a little bit. To really cherish someone, it requires you giving up at least some part of your life and your soul and your consciousness straight into the subservience and experience of another human being's subjectivity. Once again, putting it into philosophy and theory makes it sound stupid and lofty, but when John Donne writes it, When I am dead and doctors know not why, and my friend's curiosity will have me cut up to survey each part, when they shall find your picture in my heart. End quote. That is the most direct and, I don't know, simple and cutting and bludgeoning and just simply real form of uh, acknowledging that 
In fact, when you are deeply in love, you are on the verge of your own extinction. You are sacrificing your ego and your consciousness directly into that of the other. And when it becomes so passionate consuming, not only does it start to rearrange your thoughts and completely reorient to the way that you experience the world as all of your desires and your time on earth begins to direct itself towards this beloved figure, it will eventually lead to the total annihilation of who you were before. And it replaces you with a corpse. And inside that corpse is a lovely photograph uh, taken right off of Instagram of whoever it is that you covet so. That sensation is something that I that I know all too well at this point. Um, I think earlier in the episode, I said, oh, you know, in the last few weeks, I'm So Popular has been different than it has been uh, in its entire history, but I haven't uploaded an episode of the show in a month now. I can't even say that the show has become different in the last few weeks because it hasn't come out at all. And the reason behind that, I think, is because I've been so shaken up and torn up and unlike myself that my conduct has become sort of unrecognizable, and I don't feel like I can honestly speak out loud without it coming across as um, some facsimile of who I am. My being has been totally rearranged by um, what I've been through, I guess, and it's led me to experience a real um, snafu of confidence. I used to really pride myself for my uh, intellect and my charisma and my sociability, and now I feel like this miserable, beaten puppy that will... um, wince and cower when someone insults it, and I feel like a walking enormous open wound that just the most minor statement can make, um, can, uh, can, can hurt easily. I feel like I have been cadaverized. I've been turned into a dead body And when my flesh is excavated for the reason as to why I'm dead, there's going to be a picture right there, and everyone will understand quite simply. I sincerely feel as if some version of me has been terribly butchered, and the pieces of meat of myself that are lying about that I've tried to gather up into the semblance of a human being, it just doesn't look like the person that I recall embodying. So, I can barely even remember the person I was a month ago when I first started recording this episode. It was still the summer. Now it is mid-October. The weather has cooled. I am living a life that's completely different than what I was before. Because I have been fucking slain by love. Poor victories. Even my friends have commented on this. Um, I was out drinking with my friend Maggie... And she said, oh, like this is the first time and, you know, since it all went down that you seem uh, not so manic and frazzled. Uh, my coworkers must think I'm insane because the version of myself that I am right now is the only one they know. But here we are. Um, poor victories. Poor victories. 
you have to reconcile with the fact that, yes, love is violent and destructive and will eventually reduce you to a dead body on a table. But like all great metaphysical poets, there must be some conceit in there. There must be some reason that I've become silent and unconfident over the course of a month. There must be some way to turn the object, change the prism, and see some new enlightening angle that you had not imagined previously. At least I hope there is, because (laughs) if there's not a way to turn this around, I'm fucked forever. And honestly, sometimes when I was uh, going back through these done poems, I did feel like I might be in permanent danger of being like this really fucked up version of myself that I am now forever. Even in this poem, The Damp, Dunn describes the overpowering sensation of being in love as akin to a virtual medieval holocaust. He says, And like a goth and vandal rise, deface records and histories of your own arts and triumphs over men, and without such advantage, kill me then. He is equating the feeling of being totally rent by love as um, something as intense and uh, world-defining as the rise of the goths and the vandals destroying society melting history and ruining an entire culture. Thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of lives and art made for centuries, blown apart by the savage wrath of the goth and vandals. That is what love is to him in this poem. At least until the final stanza. In his usual twist of the conceit, he insists that For I could muster up, as well as you, my giants and my witches, too, which are vast constancy and secretness. He insists that his male characteristics and his potentiality for inflicting the same violence that one has inflicted upon him does in fact exist. He too could summon an army of monstrous creatures and, with his own particular masculine weapons of guarded personality, he too could destroy another with the power of love alone. This is a heterosexual poem that imagines the inherent weakness of women and the brute strength of men, and in its final line says that in nudity and the art of seduction and the inspirations of passion, A woman is, of course, just as strong, if not stronger, than the man in inflicting this genocidal, horrifying terror. That obviously has nothing to do with me, because as an elevated homosexual creature, I am not so wont to be ruined by the allure of women. But it does have a comment that I think can kind of help maybe lead me out of this labyrinth a little bit. The final passage explicates that amidst the uh, reign of Germanic death fury, that love is in fact a weapon and something that can be wielded. Just as it killed the speaker in the first stanza and uh, left his corpse marked with a pictograph of his lover, it is also something that can be tactically and strategically harnessed. It is an ambient sword one can grasp and plunge into another, 
or into themselves. I feel it current, obviously, that I have turned this blade onto me. The majesty and incredible all-knowing sagacity of love has been something I let ruin my own life. But like I said, you know, it feels good to submit to the love of the other and have one's being so thoroughly bled out that it melds with the fluids of somebody else. My heartbreak sometimes feels just as good as how it felt to be loved. And that's a scary thing to say out loud. Because I know in part that the reason I've been so off-kilter and strange is because it's kind of fascinating and mysterious and riveting to see a version of myself so dislike the one that I really think I am. But love, as Dunn says here, is the ultimate gun of the world. More than that, it's, it's actually not a gun. It's a metaphysical power that transforms and alters those who unsheath it from the rock. It can turn a woman into a man. It turns an expression into a holy war. And it turns Zach Lingley Chichi into a total miserable wallowing faggot. It also allows those who are slashed by it to see things in a new light. It's a conceit. And something with that alchemical power should not just be submitted to outright. We have to brandish the weapon in a different way. Because personally, I'm quite tired of feeling sorry for myself performatively in public. I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't want to be the cadaver laid out on the table. I want to take this horrible thing that has punctured me so, and I want to do something different with it. Immediately. Because if I don't, I fear that I will begin to lose the meaning of life itself. I really want this season of the show to be about the struggle it is to find that reason to fight to live. But I know for a fact that if I just continue down this path of being the stabbed dead body on the table, we're just not going to be able to do that. I scarce believe my love to be so pure as I had thought it was, because it doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass. Methinks I lied all winter when I swote my love was infinite if spring make it more. But if medicine, love which cures all sorrow, with more not only be no quintessence, but mixed of all stuffs, painting soul or sense, and of the sun his working vigor borrow, loves not so pure and abstract, as they used to say, which have no mistress but their muse. But as all else being elemented too, love sometimes would contemplate, sometimes do. And yet no greater, but more eminent, love by the spring is grown, as in the firmament. Stars by the sun are not enlarged, but shown, Gentle love deeds as blossoms on a bow, from love's awakened root do bud out now. If, as water stirred more circles be, produced by one, love such additions take, those like so many spheres but one heaven make. 
for they are all concentric unto thee. And though each spring do add to love new heat, as princes do in time of action get, new taxes and remit them not in peace, no winter shall abate the spring's increase. That poem is one of Dunn's uh, most famous. It's titled Love's Growth. In approaching this strange thing, love, as uh, both a very real physical thing that can kind of literally kill you and this strange aerial ephemeral weapon of mass destruction, as well as a transformative alchemy, all of these things at once, I find this poem to be quite impactful. Throughout the discussions of these poems, I've been not exactly hinting, but rather stating outright that Dunn seems to have a pretty complicated relationship with love and desire as something that is both rendered pure and innocent and holy, and also something that is abject and disgusting, violent, and perhaps even evil. Love's growth probably stands out so much in his canon because this is one of the fundamental pieces that defines the relationship of innocence and wholesomeness, as well as love's sorrow and its pain. It manages to meld all of those factors into a total depiction of the feeling in the same way that Dunn merges souls in the flea and merges life and death in the damp. The verse is almost inquisitive by nature. It seems to be uncertain of itself at the onset, as the first line immediately shows that the speaker is not entirely confident in his vision, whereas the damp and the flea are both pieces of irrevocable steadfastness. This feels a lot more shaky as the speaker emerges and admits immediately I scarce believe my love to be so pure. A lot of Dunn's contemporary, William Shakespeare, a lot of his poems had this same sort of inquisitive and philosophical questioning behind them. It often felt as if the speakers of Shakespeare's poems were um, introduced at the onset as uncertain of their worldview and by the end have utilized some narrative or poetic device to find an answer to their question. And when that's tied with Dunn's innate ability to capitalize on the conceit and to evoke these twists and imagery, it makes the answer to the question arc feel all the more satisfying and uh, real. Even before we arrive at a conceit, the imagery here is just so lucid. Dunn writes, But if medicine, love, which cures all sorrow with more, he is saying that love is a sort of sickness and a medicine at the same time. It's a disease that can only be healed with more of the disease. It is an Ouroboros and a feedback loop of negative and harsh feeling that can only be made more tolerable by doubling down in said emotion. I know that's true. I know that's very real. The more troubling that my um, affection and infatuation became, the only way I could appease myself was to deep, um, was to deepen myself in it. 
And even in my heartbreak, I often feel as if the only way I can deal with my woe is by making that woe more intense and more long felt. So once again, Dunn has it precisely right. But the main sort of metaphor and image here is that of the changing of the seasons. For the first time in these poems, time becomes a centrifugal player. And as he writes, Because my love doth endure vicissitude and season as the grass, methinks I lied all winter when I swote my love was infinite, if spring make it more. The idea here is that love is no simple and unconcocted thing. It is a melody of various elements, both painful and beautiful, and it begins with the cold winter in which one believes that the spring will make it grow into previously unseen shapes. If one's love is able to survive the darkness and coldness and hardship of the frosty winter, then inevitably the spring will make it shine and sparkle and be brighter. And of course, the promise of a love that grows more effulgent as time passes, that seems to be a beautiful thing, but it inherently points out a contradiction in that love cannot be pure and it cannot be concentrate, for if it is to change with the passage of time and the movement of seasons, it is in fact an impure and molten thing. I really just think that this is some of the most revealing literature about love ever written. To describe it as a quintessence and as a summary of many forces all at once receding and proceeding and attacking and retreating, that it is the very stew and magma of life itself, it is at the same time the sun, as it is the plants that burst from the sun's heat and growth. Dunn writes, And of the sun his working vigor borrow, loves not so pure and abstract as they used to say, which have no mistress but their muse, but as all else, being elemented too, love sometimes would contemplate, sometimes do. Love is both the poem and the object of the poem. It's the muse or the mistress or the dark figure that has generated this nightmarish force in you, and simultaneously it is the beautiful, perfect poem that you have concocted in its tribute. Love is also the revelation of the stars. It is not the enlargement of them or the growth of them, but the actual transformation in the individual's view of them. Stars by the sun are not enlarged, but shown. Gentle love deeds, as blossoms on a bow, from love's awakened root do bud out now. If one was to try and gather up all of the images we've gathered of love today, when you put it together, it would be some horrifying, biblically accurate angel with seething fleas and rotting corpses and the stars and grass bursting out of the ground. And yet the process of gathering all of those disparate elements into one single expansive force within your soul is precisely what gives love its, dare I say, magical power. I hate the word magical, but like, how else am I supposed to describe this? Like, how else am I supposed to look at this transformative witchcraft 
that completely upends you, turns you into a different person, and leaves you in scattered bits, what else am I supposed to say? And if I'm going to take any inspiration from Olivia Rodrigo, it's that sometimes you have to be a little cliche to get the point across. So yes, love is magical, and it's divine. I was hoping today that I would be able to get into some of Dunn's more religious poems and testaments towards Jesus that apply these very same feelings with the same tenor and with the same passion and um, see what I could make of that. But to be honest, I'm still kind of sorting out my feelings for Jesus. So um, let's just put a bookmark in that for now. But what I do know and what I don't need to study the Bible or the New Testament for is that people have been right about love being this mysterious force from the um, great hallmarks of literature. I mean, Dante's love for Beatrice is basically what made the Divine Comedy as impactful and prescient and long-standing as it is. And Dunn kind of sees the same thing here. When Dante writes about Paradiso in the final uh, segment of the Divine Comedy, the, um, the view of heaven is of that of a sphere. And for John Dunn, love also is that same sphere. And it's not one that's internal, it's external. If, as water stirred, more circles be, produced by one, love such additions take, those, like so many spheres, but one heaven make. For they are all concentric unto thee, and though each spring do add to love new heat, as princes do in time of action get new taxes, and remit them not in peace, no winter shall abate the spring's increase." Love, desire, lust, and passion, which I think are all quite close to one another, as I imagine Dunn would agree, are a divine substance that is completely unrelated to ourselves. It is an exterior force that we tap into, and a sequence of cause and effect, a series of multitude pieces coming together and forming this ethereal essence that we have no control over. Though you may be able to wield it for your own benefit or detriment, you are merely grabbing onto something that exists a priori. This is something that is beyond our consciousness and something we can only occasionally tap into. And that is certainly frightening, and I think Dunn is afraid of it too, which is the whole conceit of this poem. Love is impure. It is a collage of forces both frightening and beautiful at the same time, and the act of touching it or being touched by it is the stone thrown in a water and making small waves that push in so many different unpredictable directions. And more than that, it is something that when experienced even just once, the wake tide and ripples produced by it will shake your cosmic being for the rest of history. You will be permanently affected by it, and you actually cannot escape. Once the king adds taxes during a time of war, he does not lower the taxes when war is over. It's a little bit of a joke, but as we all know, it's quite true. And the fact is, is when you are 
altered by this great grace and terror of God that is love and passion, you will never be the same again. So Dunn's question as to if love is pure is answered, and the answer is that it is impure, but the impurity of it is what gives it its simultaneous purity. I don't like to use this word, but the dialectic of those two concepts is exactly wherein love resides. It is both the agony and the sorrow and the ecstasies of it. And even when you're in humiliating emotional turmoil because of it, that turmoil will rip through you for the rest of time and change history in many small and invisible, as well as hard-pressing and extremely obvious ways. I said about a month ago when I first started recording this, that I wanted to find out what love is. I think I'm getting a better idea of it, and above all of that, I am coming to terms with how to deal with its presence and absence simultaneously. Because accepting the fact that love is not something you feel, but is rather something made by God, something that is hovering in the air and is sometimes just powerful enough to shock and influence you, that's almost enough for me. To recognize that there is an all-powerful divinity in the world in the shape of love, and to let it ruin you as well as elevate you and make your life beautiful, that is one of the most unique experiences I think a human can find on earth. If love existed once for even one person, and... If heartache existed for someone, even just for an instant, then it is infinite, and it comes from some apparition that we will never truly know in its fullness. I recorded um, several episodes of the show that will be coming out in the next two weeks that all address uh, my... Uh, my relation to this whole concept, and... I think they're quite clumsy and embarrassing, and I'm here sitting in front of them knowing all of them are about to come out and show me in various different lights, uh, both pitiable and hopefully empathetic or inspiring maybe so much as once or twice, but I at least understand now, having seen all of it and about to let all of you see it too, that angelicism and divinity and beauty are all synonymous with terrible pain and sorrow and bleakness. They exist as one and the same, and they exist beyond our souls. Love and time are very similar in that way. The last poem I want to share with you is called Air and Angels. Twice or thrice had I loved thee, before I knew thy face or name. So in a voice, so in a shapeless flame, angels affect us oft, and worshipped be. Still, when to where thou wert I came, so lovely glorious nothing did I see. But since my soul, whose child love is, takes limbs of flesh and else could nothing do, more subtle than the parent is, love must not be, but take a body too. And therefore, what thou wert and who, 
I bid love ask, and now, that is assume thy body I allow, and fix itself in thy lip, eye, and brow. Whilst thus to belast love I thought, and so more steadily to have gone, with waves with which would sink admiration, I saw I had love's pinnace affraught. Every there hair for love to work upon is much too much, some fitter must be sought. For, nor in nothing, nor in things, extreme and scattering bright can love inhere, then, as an angel, face and wings, of air, not pure as it, yet pure doth wear, so thy love may be my love's sphere. Just such disparity, as is twixt air and angel's purity, twixt women's love and men's, will ever be. Support the continuation of your favorite online experimental art audio project. Please pledge $5 to I'm So Popular on patreon.com slash I'm So Popular. The bonus episodes of the show, the essential untouched continuation sirens, as well as access to the Discord and Chi-Chi's book club. Ja, matane. この体を凍結して熱く燃える。これのない叫びが俺の道を決めた。いつもの祈りを胸に受け止めて。<音楽> 